Welcome to the Flaps Podcast. And before we get started, this edition. Right, the nominations are Flaps Podcast. Should win just for the title, shouldn't it? <laughs> I thought we weren't going to mention the Sony Radio Awards. We didn't mention it, Mark. Chris Evans mentioned it, oh, so it's fine. Okay, and most cool. people don't know what the Sony Radio Awards are anyway, but we won one, and that's nice. That's let's get on good, with it now. Let's not mention it yeah. again. Okay, okay let's right. not mention it at all. Uh, in this edition, our celebrity pilot is a Premiership footballer. Really? Is it Ryan Higgs? No, Mark, no, it isn't. Okay, uh, is it Dave Beckham? No. Uh, in that case, it must be Wayne. No, no it isn't. Uh, he's one of the few footballers who doesn't have a super injunction actually. His name, we can reveal without any legal issues at all, is Marcus Hanneman and he's the Wolves reserve goalkeeper. And he flies. And he's a pilot, yeah. We visit the fantastic museum at RAF Cosford and give you a tour with the museum's curator Al McLean. We have turned up the odd weapon that still had propellant in it from time <laughs> to time, but um, not on display I'm pleased to say. If you've never been, you really should visit. It's a brilliant day out. And we like it at Flaps because it's free. You only pay for the car parking. So if you walk, it won't cost you anything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could fly, perhaps, but I don't know. You might have issues because it's an RAF airbase. You might get shot down or something. <laughs> I don't know. We're not suggesting you do that. No, no. Inspired by our visit to the museum at Cosford, Pablo Mason talks about the Cold War. If we did actually deliver the weapons that we had on board, then we were certainly going to raise the temperature of Central Europe by one or two degrees. We'll also speak to the man behind the really handy flight planning tool, Sky Demon Light. Brilliant, this. Uh, also, we're talking to Nats as well to find out what their involvement is in it and whether they approve. That's all in this edition of the Sony Award-winning Flaps podcast. Thought we weren't going to mention the Sony again. No, sorry. Celebrity Pilot. OK, we're in uh, the classroom at Hapney Green Airport and uh, we're with Wolverhampton goalkeeper, Wolverhampton Wanderers goalkeeper, Marcus Hanneman. He's our celebrity pilot. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you guys? Very well, thank you. Did you did you learn in this room? Did you have any lessons in this room? Oh, yeah, this is the uh, at the uh, flying centre is where I learned um, how to become a pilot. Are you feeling nervous now? Is this bringing back nerves? Not really, because I'm sitting in the uh, teacher's chair, so I'm okay now. <laughs> you guys are the ones who should be nervous. You can probably teach us a thing or two. You've done a lot of flying, haven't you? When did you When did you pass your skills test? Uh, in January. Okay, so and you've how many hours have you done since then? Um, forty something. Whoa! Yeah, I'm I'm almost at a hundred now. That's good. So you're obviously loving it. Yeah, just having a great time and being able to take the uh, the wife and the kids and you know the dog. With the dog up in the last flight out to uh, <laughs> Carnarvon, we hung out on the beach for an hour, and um, I don't know. That's kind of what why I wanted to get my pilot's license to be able to go fly places and do stuff, and you know the you know just going up to fly around for a little bit. Yeah, it's great practice, and you know if you don't have the opportunity to go out and go anywhere, but to actually go somewhere is that's what it's about. What's it like with a dog in a plane? I've never, I can't imagine that's the easiest thing. Is it a big dog? A lab, yeah. <laughs> Do you, do you like strap it down? Uh, no, he was sitting in my <laughs> wife's lap. So, and and the boys wanted me to do a couple of, uh, you know, really uh, sixty degree bank turns and things. And she goes, "You better not do it." The dog's head's on my lap. We didn't know how he was going to react. So I'm just thinking, whenever you see a dog in a car, they put their head out of the window. Is it the same in an airplane? Yeah, we were trying to open <laughs> the window for him, but. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, why did you want to learn to fly? Is it something uh, you've always wanted to do as a kid, or is it just a, a recent thing? No, I was uh, I was eighteen, you know, still in high school. Um, the Marine recruiters came in into town, and you know, I was talking to them, and I wanted to fly helicopters, and went and took my ASVAB, which is my pre 
our, you know, my army pre-placement test and yeah. aced that. And, you know, the only problem was, is I, I was only 18 at the time and you have to be 19 to get into flight school in the Marines and, uh, you know, ended up getting a soccer scholarship to go to Seattle Pacific university. And, um, so that was the logical choice to do that first. And then, you know, thinking that maybe go back in. Soccer, is it, is it my ignorance or is that not the game in the States it is here in terms of the popularity of it? No, we don't have as, you know, as many people watching the game, but if you're talking about a spectator sport, it's not as popular, but when you're talking about participation sport, it is huge. Every kid plays it when you're growing up and, you know, kids have fun playing it. And some of the other games, especially the American games are pretty complicated and, you know, the, the baseball, you know, so many rules and. Can I ask you a question about American sport? Why, why is there a world series of baseball when no one else plays it? Because we're the only people who matter. <laughs> and American football, you see that you've, you've invented a game that no one else understands. Yeah, too many rules. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I love it though. It's brilliant. We, we we could learn a lot from the Americans and their sport. Is as a kid who's learning to play football in the states and then becoming a pro in the states, is coming to play in England the holy grail? I think so. And I wanted to come here and and you know my uh, I you know I did four years university at Seattle Pacific University, graduated, signed with the Seattle Sounders. You know, stayed in Seattle for one more year and then went to Colorado for three years. But knowing that whole time that I wanted to come over here and, you know, kept coming and training with different teams. And, you know, I went to Sheffield Wednesday was my first team. And then I went to West Ham. And um, then um, I knew Paul Barron, um, who was the goalkeeper coach at Aston Villa, and just trying to get over here because this is where I wanted to go. And I saw Casey Keller and Brad Friedel were, you know, had come over and, you know, were making a name for themselves. And this was it. This is as good as it got. Do you mind me asking how old you are now? 39 next month. Now, goalies obviously have a longer career than... than obviously, you know, 39 next month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, you could play for a few years longer, but you're getting towards the end of your career now. Is is flying going to be the new career when you go home, or, or are you just going to do it for fun and getting around? My buddy's got a, uh, a house up in Tofino, which is on Vancouver Island, and it's about a 10-hour drive with ferry and traffic and everything. You know, there's no way you could do it without 10 hours. It's two hours in a 172 Cessna. No contest, is it? No, and you actually start making money if you start if you think of it that way because the amount it costs to rent a plane in the states and you know and get you and your family or your buddies to to a place like that if especially if you guys are actually working, you know, you're saving it, you know, 2 days worth of work. Could we imagine say in 10 15 years time that you could be uh captain of a commercial airliner somewhere? Well, would you want to do that? Maybe some charter flights. Right. Maybe you might be watching me on the uh, National Geographic on Alaska Bush Pilots, the t- Series 10. You know, that's what I could imagine myself doing. More of the, the smaller, smaller things, you know. I mean, I never really wanted to do the uh, the big commercial, you know, jets. That's never really been one of my, one, it's not the reason why I've done it. But I could see why people want to do it because you're constantly, you know, after, you know, the, the warrior, then it's the arrow. Then I'm thinking of... Uh, the lance, which is, you know, a little bit faster. And, you know, you always want to kind of move up to the next step. You're pushing yourself, I guess. It's yeah. always something to learn, yes. And, you know, and I'm going to do my, you know, I want to do my float rating. And, and you can see how that you just keep progressing and you always want to get something bigger. And you can, I can see the draw to it. But, you know, I've spent a lot of time on the roads and away from my family. And it'd be nice to not have to do that so much. And I don't want to be, have to live somewhere. Maybe, I you know, maybe I don't really want to live or really firm schedule maybe that's what i don't want if i could do something you know a couple days here or there that sounds more like what i'm 
going to be looking for when I'm done. Home back in the States is Seattle, isn't it? Yeah, Seattle. And then we have a... That's, that's north, isn't it? North, north, northwest, yeah. What's, is the weather there kind of like the UK? Yeah, pretty similar. So this is quite, quite a good place to learn then, I suppose. Yeah, because we have you know similar similar weather, but we have mountains. You guys have hills and mounds. <laughs> yes. You know, it's a little a bit big different. Lump. Yeah. One of the big employers up there in uh, in Seattle uh, is Boeing, of course. Um, am I right in thinking there's a family connection to Boeing? Yeah, my dad immigrated from Hamburg in 66, worked for Boeing, and that was, uh, when did he retire? He retired in 02, maybe, and then had about a year off and started working for him again. You know, he didn't <laughs> like that old, reti- no, he didn't like that retired stuff, but, uh, he's, you know, they had, he finished the triple seven. Um, yeah, what did he, he, what did he do for Boeing then? Uh, he's a structural engineer, did engine mounts and installations was you know, mainly what he did throughout, you know, 737, 747, 777. And he worked on that from start to finish. And then, um, you know, the new airplane was coming up, the 787, and didn't think he was going to be around to see the end of it. So he goes, you know, maybe it's time to retire. And the real reason why he went back, I think, is because my sister has three kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And so my mom really picks up the pieces. She works full time. So right. my dad's like, I'm going back to work. <laughs> works, to work, works easier. And can he fly? No, no, he okay. cannot. And have you taken him up yet? Or is yeah, I've, he had, has... I've had him up. You have, and right, okay. rumor has it he's bringing over a Bose headset because he's going to he's going to do some lessons with Les, I think. Oh, right. OK, so it could be running in the family. Yeah. So I think he wants to go out and do it. So um we will see. We'll see when he turns up if he's going to go out and do it or not. What do your Wolverhampton Wanderers teammates think of you flying? Some guys, you know, show a little bit of interest, but, you know, the complexity of, you know, getting your license, the, the books and, you know, you name it. They just look at it as a lot of work. We know that you fly and maybe it's the American in you, but I can't imagine, for instance, uh, Wayne Rooney learning to fly. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> Nothing against Wayne Rooney, but I can't imagine Rooney learning to fly. If Wayne Rooney learns to fly and gets a license, I'm handing my license back. I don't want to be up there when Rooney's up there. Have you offered to fly any of your teammates to a game, to an away match somewhere? Well, we had that that big thing. We were going to fly like I was. It was an April Fool's joke that I was flying the whole team up to uh, to Newcastle, <laughs> and we we're actually on an Eastern Airways flight. So it was kind of funny because I said, "Oh, uh, we're flying," you know, "we're flying up there," and someone goes, "Oh, is, is Buddy flying?" It's like they all call me Buddy. And then our press guy, Paul, is like, oh, this is going to be great. He goes, we'll, we'll, we'll get a few <laughs> interviews. And we had, you know, me doing an interview. And I think a few people actually, you know, put it out there as that we were actually doing it. Well, you, do you know what? The amount of hours you've done, you probably could. Yeah, well, I mean, it was just, good enough, Marcus. It was, it was just a, you know, <laughs> Why not? twin engine jet stream, right? You know, no problem. <laughs> I got that. I got that. Uh, just, just finally, um, obviously, we're at Hapney Green, otherwise known as... Wolverhampton Business Airport. Surely, if you if you, you must know see the irony in that you play for Wolves, but fly from WBA. Oh yeah, well the guy who owns this place is a uh, is a West Brom fan, I think. <laughs> well, you don't you don't know who I'm playing for next Pardon? year, do you? Oh, who are you playing for next year? You just said it. Are you? You playing for them? No. Oh. <laughs> see, it's an April yeah. Fools again. There yeah. we are. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just messing. I have no idea what I'm doing next year. Get my float rating in the summer. Of course, for the for back home. Yeah, yeah you, you're doing your IMC over here. Yeah, which doesn't actually count in the states, but just one of those things that actually can save your life. So it's maybe yeah, yeah. not the worst <laughs> thing to kind of have up your sleeve, just in case you are stuck in cloud that you can actually fly on instruments. So, and I enjoy learning stuff, and 
it, it is very complicated and and flying like the NDB uh, DME approach here is is not easy. But just trying to get that through your head, and then um, if you want complicated, you do do the full instrument rating. If you want complicated, yeah, well that's another fifty hours or whatever. <laughs> you could probably finish that in a couple of weeks. The way you're flying at the moment, yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe a month. Listen, it's great to speak to you. Thanks for being our uh, celebrity pilot, our first footballer, and our first American. Thank you. Flaps climbing where others descend. Well, we hope you're enjoying this Sony award-winning no, no, podcast. No, we, we weren't going to mention it. Yep, sorry, my, my mistake. Hope you're enjoying it anyway. Uh, if ever you're out and about and you find yourself in Shropshire on the M54, uh, you can either come off at Iron Bridge and go and see an Iron Bridge. <laughs> yes. Or you can go on uh, and you can come off at RAF Cosford and, and see... see some iron planes. No, they've got a stainless steel plane, though. Oh, fair enough. Which yes. is a bit weird. And they've got some other brilliant stuff. So we had a bit of a, a flaps away day at RAF Cosford. We caught up with the museum's curator, a guy called Al McLean. Well, we're standing right next to what's possibly the jewel in our collection, which is the test flight aircraft. They're mostly unique or one or two off aircraft, which you can't see anywhere else in the world. Quite a lot of the aircraft we've got here are like that. But test flight, I think, the first hangar you come to on your tour is um, probably the, the, the principal reason for coming to Cosford. Is this, is this one of the best collections in the country? Oh, I've never been before. This is the first time I've been. It certainly looks very impressive. The main hangar over there is an amazing-looking building, but have, oh, you, have, you got a, have you got a good collection here? I think we have quite a good collection. You, you just referred to the Cold War uh, hangar, the National Cold War Exhibition, as yeah. we call it, and that is quite unusual. It's got all sorts of things in there. Somewhat flippantly, I once said more weapons of mass destruction in there than George <laughs> Bush found in Iraq, <laughs> which is almost true. None of them live, I hope. Um, well, we hope not. Yeah. <laughs> give them a kick as we go past them we'll see we have turned up the odd weapon that still had propellant in it from time to time but um not on display i'm pleased to say but in store uh, marked free from explosive they nevertheless had the, the igniting charge still inside them we think we've got all over all those now so well, no it's all so. safe I hope so. well i'll walk behind you okay you can go first Okay, well, we're here in the uh, test flight hangar. Al, there's a chap Elliot and I learned to fly with, and I'm sure every flying club's got one of these, a guy who could spot any of these dozen or so aircraft by silhouette from probably about three miles away. I have to get right close and see what the labels say to know what they are, but this is the Bristol 188. This is impressive. It's a one-off. They, they only made two of them, and this is the last one alive. But it's all actually made of stainless steel. Because most aircraft, of course, are made of aluminium, aren't they? Or, or alloys, or you know, but this is stainless steel, the same stuff as your sink is made of. Absolutely, yes. And possibly, you could argue better that it was sinks. Uh, it was a very heavy aeroplane. It's unique for another reason as well. It's actually not riveted together like most aluminium aircraft are. It's actually welded together. An idea that was way ahead of its time then. In fact, I don't think we've even produced a, a successfully welded-together aeroplane yet. Does it fly like a kitchen sink? Is it Because it must be very heavy. Well, it didn't get to its design speed, that's for certain. I've got about three feet of stack of files describing why not and discussing whether the fitment of the ramp one temperature intake sensor should be fitted before flight 12 okay, you've or lost after. me now, you lost me now. I think I've lost me as well. <laughs> um, but you can see that it took an awful lot of civil servants to make the decision in those days, perhaps it still does, I don't know, uh, on what was going to be done. And in fact, the aircraft never got to its design speed. It was going to investigate the heat problems that existed at supersonic flights. It never actually managed to do that. Uh, because they believed that there would be huge thermal problems. How do you get rid of all the heat you're generating when you're going at twice the speed of sound? And in fact, the problems were quite big. They were solved in Concorde, but it was quite a challenge to do that. Of course, Bristol, one of, as was once, many UK manufacturers. Did they all have different methods of manufacturing and designing? 
Oh, and different philosophies as well. Uh, the structures, uh, ge the gentleman in charge of the structures on this, uh, explained it to me like this. He said, de Havilland, the aerodynamicists were king and they had uh, supremacy in the design. At Bristol, it was the structures people who had the supremacy. So sometimes the Bristol aircraft may not look quite as pretty, but my word, they're strong. De Havilland aircraft, beautiful to look at, but of course we had things like the Comet disaster, which, and you couldn't argue that perhaps if structures had been a, the primacy in the design case, then perhaps that wouldn't have happened. And there's all sorts of other things in here that are, again, one-off. The fly-by-wire Jaguar, which is the sort of great-grandfather of Eurofighter Typhoon. And then there are some weird things. There's a, an aircraft where the pilot flew it lying down. Um, this was to get round the G-forces that people experience. It works. The problem is it's damn difficult to fly when you're lying on your elbows because you can't reach anything. And you also can't turn your head to look out, which, of course, every fighter pilot wants to do. What is amazing as you stand here, you can almost see the evolution and experience in aircraft design from, from the 40s onwards, how, how engineers and designers learn to make aircraft. Absolutely, and at the expense of the test pilot. The white one behind us there did kill one of its test pilots as they discovered how to make them work. It did work, but it died, died trying, as I might say. It was quite brave being a test pilot in the 50s and 60s, I think, because you, you really didn't know what was going to happen. And my goodness, when it all went wrong in the air, you had very little time to sort it out and come out of it in one piece. You mentioned uh, test pilots. There's a, a selection of uh, ejector seats over there. Have they, have they seen action? Uh, none of these ones have actually fired, so far as we know, although um, we do hope uh, to, sh to show shortly some movie footage of these ones, actually, or seats like them going out of the aircraft. If nothing else, Al, that would be a fantastic interactive part of the museum. Make <laughs> them work. Well, 50p a go. There used to be a rig for a trainee jet pilots in the RAF, and we uh, involved firing up, up to roughly the height of the hangar roof and this rig used to come around. It used compressed air, it didn't use uh, the explosive cartridges. I'd love to know where that is now. <laughs> It'll be here soon. It'll be here. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, walk in tall and leave six inches shorter. Brilliant. <laughs> I've got a couple of friends for whom that's unfortunately true actually. Yeah, one friend had to eject from a jet provost in the circuit in Yorkshire and he was uh, three quarters of an inch shorter after that two stone heavier. Oh, that was his excuse, I don't <laughs> Well, we've moved through into the next hangar, which is warplanes. And is this really the world's oldest Spitfire in front of us? Well, we've been telling everybody that for about five years, and no one's contradicted us yet. So if you know different, <laughs> please let us know. But we believe, yes, this is the world's oldest Spitfire. It's a Mark I, and stretching the definition slightly, it saw service in the Battle of Britain. It's a magnificent plane. I mean, iconic, isn't it? I mean, everyone loves the Spitfire. I think so, yes. We've just celebrated the 75th anniversary of the first Spitfire flight and uh, over 3,000 people turned up here at the weekend on Saturday just to have a look and to celebrate that with us. So, yeah, it's still a very powerful image for lots of people. The plane we're stood in front of now, I'm, I'm quite surprised you've got one of these because you wouldn't obviously expect to find many of them left. This is a, a Japanese suicide attack plane. Yes, indeed, the uh, Yokosuka Oka, and uh, it's one of, I think, about three in the UK. Um, we actually did meet one of the pilots of these aircraft, and uh, that's slightly surprising. So obviously the first question is, how is he still alive? Yeah. 
The answer we got via his daughter, because he didn't speak English, was that when they completed their training, they were given a date on which they would fly. The date he was given was three days after the surrender, so he didn't fly. He said, however, that he would have been quite prepared to go had really? he been ordered to. It's amazing because it's, I mean, it's only a tiny little plane. It's, it's, ro- it's rocket powered, isn't it? It's, just, it's, it's essentially a, a rocket with wings on it and a tiny place for the pilot to sit and, a, and quite sort of sinisterly a, a sight and, right in front of the windscreen. Yes, indeed. This was carried aloft underneath a bigger bomber, Betty Bomber, and then the pilot would get into it at some point in the flight and then be released from his mother aeroplane, pointed towards the uh, enemy ship. He'd ignite his rocket patent, try and guide it into a high-value target. And, uh, and no, no landing gear, obviously, because none needed. No, this was a one-way ticket. You weren't coming back. I have some difficulty getting my head around that, but clearly it fitted in with the culture of the time and the, the nation involved. OK, well, we're looking now at, um, at some impressive uh, hardware. These are, are nuclear missiles, aren't they? Yes, there's a Polaris lying on its side down there, but standing upright and looking very impressive is the intermediate-range ballistic missile Thor, which was what was called a dual-key missile. That is, the uh, Americans controlled the warhead and the Brits controlled the missile, the launching of it. So you needed both the Americans and the Brits present to uh, do their part of the thing to get the missile to go. We never actually used any of these, obviously, but uh, did we ever test them anywhere? Indeed we did, yes. The missiles and a crew were taken across to Vandenberg Air Force Base in California periodically, and each squadron had to send someone over there from time to time to uh, actually test fire the missile out into the Pacific. And in fact, the former technical curator here at the RAF Museum, Bill Roseby, some people might know, was actually one of the technicians, the lead technician, on a firing of a Thor missile at Vandenberg. So he's one of the people, occasionally comes in, one of the people who actually did fire one, if not in anger, at least for real. That Thor, sir? It looks like a single-stage rocket. How far would that go? Uh, it was about 1,200 miles. It wasn't. That's why they had to be based in Europe and couldn't be based in the United States because they couldn't reach the Soviet Union from the United States. Well, I was going to say, how on earth does it navigate itself? Because, you know, we're talking well before the days of GPS and you assume they wouldn't use any kind of radio beacon. So how did it find where it was going to? It did actually triangulate on stars. The amazing thing about this is the company that manufactured this fixing system was the American Spark Plug Company. From a small spark to a very, very big bang. Indeed. So we've moved into Hangar 1 now. Uh, what, what's, uh, what's in Hangar 1? What can we find in here, Al? Well, this is where we put the transport and training aircraft. It's the, one of the bigger hangars on site, and the transport aircraft tend to be bigger, so it's appropriate to put them in here. And in fact, we're standing under the nose of the world's first ever jet airliner, the de Havilland Comet. The, uh, the yeah, beautiful aircraft, but flawed, very flawed, wasn't it? Well, in its original design, yes, there was a problem, and uh, after a certain number of fatigue cycles, the pressure cabin hull came under. This one went back to the factory. This one is actually in service with Air France. Went back to the factory. It was modified. It's got the round windows now. And it had a very successful career with the Royal Air Force, uh, or the procurement executive at least, as a trials and development aircraft. And it didn't actually retire until 1968. Uh, so you've got a great job, I think it's fair to say, curating this lot. It's a, it's a hell of a collection. You must love it. Well, what a great thing to do every day. Well, I have to say, if you've got to fall out of aviation into something, this is a jolly good job to fall into. Thank you ever so much for showing us around, Al. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, we, we've loved it, and we thoroughly recommend a visit. It's Mason's Minute. Uh, the team at Flaps uh, agreed that the Royal Air Force Museum at Cosford is an outstanding aviation museum, and we don't agree about everything to do with aeroplanes. I've been to that exhibition several times, and each time I go, there's something new or something different 
that raises the hackles in my back and brings back the most tremendous and sometimes fearsome memories of my experience of the Cold War when I was stationed in Royal Air Force Germany. But my kids um, don't need to ask me what did you do in the war, Daddy, because in the Gulf War of 1991, my exploits are fairly well documented and fairly well recoverable on film. But uh, the kids have never asked me what did I do in the Cold War, Daddy. The Cold War for a pilot in RAF Germany in the mid to late 1980s was a pretty challenging time. We were required to be able to launch an entire squadron and on occasions an entire station within barely a few minutes and that was in anticipation of a no-notice attack on a NATO ally. The strategy that we had as a member of NATO at the time was one of massive retaliation. Basically, if an attack on a NATO country took place, it was deemed to be um, an attack on every NATO country, so off we would go. There were some very exciting times. We had a role um, of delivering nuclear weapons, and there were a number of aircraft in what we called QRA, and that was Quick Reaction Alert, uh, in a concrete shed. I'm still not allowed to say how many aeroplanes there were, and I'm still not allowed to say how many bombs each aeroplane carried, but there were sufficient. And those were the days when we could joke quite reasonably that we weren't really military pilots. We were, in fact, European central heating engineers, because if we did actually deliver the weapons that we had on board, then we were certainly going to raise the temperature of central Europe by one or two degrees. I was fairly certain that when I'd finished delivering my weapons, what I would do was go into my low-level aerobatics display because I would be determined that somebody saw it before uh, I met my maker. I was fairly convinced that it was a one-way mission if we actually uh, launched. And in fact, for many of the years that we stood on QRA and a crew would be there for 24 hours in the shed waiting for the phone call from the Prime Minister telling you to go, but uh, basically the rule was that once you were told to go and several code words needed to be used and several procedures needed to be adhered to very, very closely, but once you actually launched and the wheels were in the well, you weren't coming back. Simple as that. On the lesser standbys, when we actually launched with conventional weapons, it wasn't unusual for us to hurtle towards the border to see how quickly the Russian fighters would launch to intercept us. And with barely a few kilometres to go, we would either pull up into a loop to go back the other way, loop and half roll off the top, uh, or we would do screaming Jesus level turn to get back uh, westbound. But um, you never actually went over the border because I'm pretty sure that if we did, we'd probably find uh, a Mach 5 enema in situ very, very quickly. And, of course, that was pretty unsurvivable. But uh, it was fun. We would launch towards the border. The Russians would get ready to intercept. And then a few weeks later, when it was their turn, they'd launch towards the border and our fighters would go and intercept them. It was really rather jolly. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. Pablo Mason on the Sony award-winning Flaps podcast. I thought we weren't mentioning it. We've mentioned it every link so far. I'm sorry. I was on the Flaps podcast. You shout at me for doing it. Now you're doing it. On the Flaps podcast. That's better. Should we give the award back? 
No. Should we give it to the Yamaha no. download? No, I paid a lot of money for my chicken dinner and my award. Thank you very much. Now, to get back to aviation, you may have seen there's a fantastic bit of kit being released online. It's called Sky Demon Light. And joining us on the phone is the man behind it, Sky Demon creator Tim Dawson, and also from Nats, uh, from the Infringements Department, uh, Jonathan Smith. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Hi there. Uh, so this is a, a top bit of kit, this, Sky Demon Light. Uh, it's, it's available online and people can use it to plan their, their, uh, their routes. Tell us a bit more about it. Well, um, Sky Demon Light came about because uh, Nats identified uh, a need for people to be able to plan routes in a slightly better or more modern way than using the old slide rule and to have a better uh, presentation of briefing data than was available, um, which, is, which was the AIS website previously. Um, so... What, what the requirement was was a, a graphical depiction of, of pretty much everything, easy point-and-click access uh, to the route creation, and then be able to produce a plug from that and fly. So, so let me get this straight. You, you pretty much, uh, on, on the, the website, draw lines on a map as you would do in the real world, and then it, it tells you whether you're going to conflict with anything. Is that the gist of it? That's pretty much it, yeah. You, you can click uh, from waypoint to waypoint, or you can just uh, type in the names of the airports you want to fly between, and then it's a sort of... It's a case of uh, dragging and dropping like, uh, like you would on other mapping products to, to change the route. And then, yeah, it tells you what airspace you might inadvertently penetrate, including uh, red arrows, displays and other NOTAMs that you might not be aware of. And it, it, it easily identifies which things are a hazard. It sounds brilliant. And let me get this right. It's free. It that can't, that can't be right, Tim. It's free. It is free. That's right. <laughs> are you mad? <laughs> well, Sky Demon Light is... Um, is, is a, a, a venture from us, which is a, a sort of cut-down version of our, our full product. So we do have a, a sort of older brother, which, which does cost a little bit of money and does far more things. You made Sky Demon, and then uh, Nats came along and said, hang on, guys, we can use this. And uh, from Nats on the line is Jonathan Smith. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. So what happened? How did you uh, decide that Sky Demon was the thing to go with? Well, we spend an awful lot of time looking at uh, incident reports involving general aviation aircraft and we've been trying to identify traits, things that we know are going wrong in the cockpit uh, that ruin somebody's day and end up ruining our day as well. Jonathan, do you think that since GPS and you know the advent of technology, has GA uh, generally got a lot, a lot better at avoiding airspace or is it still a big problem? Well, it certainly is a big problem in the UK. Um, for the first time in 2009, airspace infringements in a calendar year went over a, a thousand in the UK. And I'm a GA pilot myself, and I, I don't think that's a figure that we should be um, celebrating in any way. In fact, I, I feel rather ashamed of that figure as a GA pilot. And I, I'm quite passionate as an air traffic controller and a GA pilot that we can do better. But um, there has to be some acknowledgement that... Um, technology can help in this way and sometimes uh, the really best tools and the really best simple bits of functionality were just not out there and that's why Nats were very keen to go and specify that functionality in a product and acknowledge and share share that functionality. Now Tim back to you with this uh, obviously we heard from Jonathan there and it is kind of Nats approved and you've got the you know the, the seal of approval and everything does that mean that because obviously you know when you learn to fly you have to do it with your rulers and your whiz wheel and all that stuff and you're not allowed to use any of this kit but you know will, will student pilots be allowed to use this system well, that's a very interesting question I mean, obviously a student pilot could never use such equipment on their on their test because i think the, the point of the test is to prove that you can do it without 
Although, but then you never use issues. it again, do you? Let's be honest. Well, that, that's true. I mean, if, <laughs> if you found yourself in a, a tricky situation, you wouldn't be whipping out the whiz wheel, probably, no. and doing calculations on a slide rule. You would probably call 121.5 and let someone else help. A question that, that pilots have asked me is, how, how much can they trust what Skydemon uh, and Skydemon Light tell them? Because I've had people say, it's all very well, but then we want to go and check, I don't know, the Reds and the Royals, check the NOTAMs, check everything. Will this do it all for you? It does do it all for you. We have to put the usual disclaimers on there that are on any website, including the AIS. Um, all we can tell people, really, is that all our NOTAM data comes directly from Eurocontrol, just like the data that you see on the AIS website. And all the airspace data comes straight from the AIP. So it's, it it's, it's can be trusted then, essentially. I mean, obviously, as you said, you have to put a legal disclaimer on there, but, you know, people can trust your software and it's working from properly approved and organised and resourced databases. Absolutely. We've been asked by a few people about this, and I think pilots do panic. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because you, you, it's drummed into you from when you learn that you've got to check and check and check again. But well, I think, you, you know, you as, long, as long as you, you people are, uh, can trust the database, I think that's what people want to know, Tim. There's never any harm in checking and checking again. Any plans to bring out a version on the iPhones, iPads, or any Android tablets? Uh, not currently. We're, we always look into um, sort of providing it on different platforms. We've just brought out a version for the web, for example, um, but it takes an awful lot of effort to, to port it to such a different platform like that. Um, when the numbers are right, we may do it. So, Tim, there's not an app for that, then? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Just going back to you, to you, Jonathan. I mean, yeah. If, if obviously people are listening to this now, uh, you know, we, we appeal mostly to pilots. Uh, probably non-pilots at this point don't really know what the hell we're talking about. Planning routes is not the most exciting bit. But you know, would you encourage people to use software like this? Oh, absolutely. It's quite interesting. We've got um, plenty of air traffic controllers within the company. Um, some uh, air traffic controllers who are managers and some managers who are not air traffic controllers or pilots. But it does have that wow factor. Um, it looks graphically very appealing. It's fun to use. It's intuitive to use. And uh, people simply like playing with it. Um, and actually, we believe quite passionately in people playing around with the tool. I mean, in the last few weeks, I've planned 100 flights, which... Um, I'm never going to fly. I can't afford to fly. I'd love to fly. <laughs> but actually, um, planning my uh, dream trip to the Western Isles in the Piper Cub um, is half the fun of it. But in, in playing with the tool, in just understanding the interaction with airspace, we think that that will offer a lot of GA pilots uh, a lot of information and a lot of benefit when they actually come to execute the flight. So um, even if you're not planning on making the flight, just just play with the software because it, it will increase your knowledge. Is that what well, you're saying? Well, I, I think it's huge fun. I really think it's huge fun. And you can, uh, we have some very very complex airspace in the southeast of England that we acknowledge and um, we're not particularly proud of because it it does make life difficult for GA pilots. But actually playing around with a tool like Sky Demon Light, interacting graphically with an up-to-date chart um, with NOTAM data graphically depicted on it where possible, we think um, really doesn't help inform a pilot um, about the complexities of the airspace that they're planning on operating in. Well, it sounds like a brilliant bit of kit. Um, just give us the, uh, what's the website for it again, Tim? So you can get to Sky Demon Light at www.skydemonlight.com. And that gives you all the free stuff we've talked about here. And there's also an upgrade button, which you can press if you're interested in sort of trying our full software for free as well. And you'd like people to press that very much, I guess. We <laughs> certainly would. <laughs> Listen, it's lovely to speak to you. It's a great idea. Thank you very much, Tim. And Jonathan, um, hopefully this will make your life a bit easier, won't it? Well, it's always very difficult to um, measure the 
practical enhancements to safety that this is delivering. I mean, anecdotally, we're already getting an awful lot of information back from pilots that have used the tool and deployed a a, uh, plug into the cockpit for the first time in a long time Hmm. in some cases. So we think that uh, careful planning will make the whole VFR flight experience more enjoyable and more importantly, more uh, safer for, for, for us on the receiving end. Presumably, if in uh, if infringements fall below a thousand, then you're you're going in the right direction, aren't you? So during 2010, we had uh, the first indications of a good news story as far as infringements concerned. Infringements in the NATS operation are about um, 16, 18 percent down, and um, quite dramatically in the southeast of England, where we have the largest infringements issue, about 35, 36 percent down. So we're going in the right direction. We don't want to take the pedal off the gas. And um, we think that getting involved in clever little bits of functionality and products like Sky Demon Light is exactly the way to go. Um, And we'd like the whole of the GA community using the tool and carefully and safely planning the flights in the future. Well, thanks for talking to us, Jonathan. And anything that makes uh, planning those routes a bit simpler has got to be a good thing. Thanks for joining us on Flaps. Lovely speaking to you. Well, thanks for joining us on another Sony Award-winning Flaps podcast. We weren't going to mention it once. We mentioned it six times We're the third best podcast in the UK. The third best, Mark. What happens if we win another award? That's not very likely, is it? No, it's not really, it's very likely. I think it's beginner's luck, really. (laughs) Anyway, uh, coming up on the next edition of the Flaps podcast, didn't mention it there, uh, we will be talking to a flying pop group. Not the flying pickets. No, Mark, not the flying pickets. (laughs) Who is it then? The feeling. Going first solo, for me, was the same feeling and experience as when we played uh, Wembley Stadium, the Diana concert. Two of them fly, so we'll be talking to the two that fly. I'm sure the other blokes are nice, but they don't fly, so they don't get on flaps. The feeling on the next edition of the Flaps podcast. Plus some other stuff as well. It's all there, uh, so we'll see you next time on the... I nearly said it. Flaps podcast. (laughs) Well done. Thank you for listening to this one. It's time for us to Foxtrot Oscar. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps.